Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Some of Borderline was improvised because some of the actors are good improvisers. David Elms is a phenomenal improviser. But not all of them felt comfortable improvising. And so we wrote the show. And the show is, you know, as written as any show is. It's about how you approach it when you show up on set and whether you're going to allow an actor say, hey, can I say something here? And you say, yeah. And that's sort of the approach we've got. We allow people to feel, if they feel comfortable, to add. And we sort of embrace that. And that's fun. But we always make sure we get a take as written, we always, maybe even two takes as written, and then we sort of let the actors sort of add in after that. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker, and writer, all-round ADHD creative, and welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives, ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts, and we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives, and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I'm joined by the very funny Michael Orton Tolliver, who is the co-creator and writer of the Channel 4 sitcom Borderline. Balancing Acts is now made in association with The Comedy Crowd, who are a website and community that support independent comedy creators such as myself. I have a Comedy Crowd short, which is a a two-minute video, one of my characters on their website. They showcase the best new videos on Comedy Crowd TV, which is comedycrowdtv.com, and across media platforms, so do go and check them out. This one was a really enjoyable conversation. I like Michael. He's a very funny dude, smart, and really took the time out to break down and explain various processes to writing and creating a show we kicked off with michael's early days performing improv moving to amsterdam from la to perform as part of chicago boom what an adventure that sounded like we also discussed how the collaborative nature of improv has helped shape michael as a writer and how his experience with a border force patrol officer led him to being put in a cell and was ultimately the inspiration behind the channel five and now netflix sitcom borderline Michael breaks down his writing process. He explains how improv led him to meeting Chris Gow, his writing partner and co-creator of Borderline. We also discuss the process of developing a show from writing it to eventually shooting it and the struggle of handing over your script that you worked tirelessly on, giving that vision to a director now to interpret that and, and, find, and, and get sort of the visual beat behind that. 
We also talk about the balance between making sure your cast hit all those beats and lines that you've been working working so hard on, but also allowing enough room to improvise as, you know, there, there was a certain amount or certain degree of improv in Borderline, but not as much as as had been rumoured. So we talk about that as well. Michael also discusses how being a new dad has affected his writing and general approach to work. There's loads here. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. So over to Michael. Perfect. I find it weird that I haven't done a podcast because it's 2020. And I feel like if we walked outside and we got on a bus and we asked everybody on the bus, have you ever done a podcast? Like I think 40% of the people would be like, yeah, I've done a podcast. Yeah. Old ladies, kids, everybody I think has done a podcast. So like, I feel weird that this is my second podcast, but also sort of like intimidated because I also think that like podcasts mainly what I listen to now. So it's like, it feels like, I feel like I'm on TV. Okay. Even though I'm in your living room. <laughs> You're in my living room. And uh, as we discussed before, I'm sitting on a, on a cushion on the floor. Yeah. And I'm sitting sitting on a couch kind of opposite you and we're like... You're like the talk show host. Yes. And I'm the guest right now. But but weirdly, you're the talk show host. Yeah. And I'm the guest. Yeah. Some head fuckery right there, right? I remember the last episode of like... One of the last episodes of David Letterman, Jerry Seinfeld asked David Letterman... I'm sorry, I'm American, so I'm talking talking about American uh, people, but... Jerry Seinfeld asked to switch seats with David Letterman. So I remember. He could catch yeah. the view. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah, it's That's great. sort of what it feels like in this dynamic. Also, I'll say that your apartment's very, very nice. Thank um, you. Thank you. Very nice for a podcaster. I would have guessed a podcaster would have had a much shittier apartment than this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've just, I'm, I'm, this isn't my apartment. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm okay. using it for really just to impress you. Okay, it's working. Uh, it's I, live, really nice. I, li- I live in the shed around the back. <laughs> it's, it's really it's good. It's insulated. I, mean, well, I don't know, like we're in a nice, uh, I won't say where. Well, I told you the story, didn't I? That, yeah, yeah. Um, I moved in with my girlfriend a year ago and then uh, and then we broke up and, uh, yeah. and now I'm I'm here alone and uh, yeah. it's, I, I, I sh- financially I shouldn't really be here. Yeah, yeah. But I'm having a great time. Yeah. How are you emotionally? Emotionally, it sounds like you shouldn't be here either. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah, well, no, it's nice. Yeah. It's nice. I think if like I was going to be like, this is I don't know. You're a young younger guy. Like I think this would be the ideal bachelor apartment. This is really so. great. Yeah. No, I mean, well, I don't know. Like I like when you think of batch pads. Yeah. Uh, Christian Bale, American Psycho, sort yes. of like more like clean, yeah. new build. Yeah. You know, with big windows. Whereas yeah. this is more like old school Victorian conversion style. That's right. No, yeah, you're definitely like the hipster bachelor more than you are the corporate bachelor. I wasn't angling for that, but I'll take the compliment. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Still giving like, and you're also not a psychopath killer, which I think, you know. Well, that's, uh, well I don't know. I mean, it could be. I don't know. Well, let's yeah. see. Well, that's part of the reason I invited you around here. <laughs> None it, of the other guests have been seen since. <laughs> isn't the end of that movie, isn't it like, do they do a thing at the end of that movie where it could be a dream? Where you don't know if he actually is killing all those people or not. Is that so? I don't know. That's what this podcast is about, right? American Psycho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 very niche, and that's why we have lots of followers. <laughs> yeah. Each, um, each guest comes on and gives their own interpretation of American Psycho. Yeah. Never gets tiring. Never no, repetitive. No, no, no. It's a good movie. It's got a lot of material. Yeah. I think I'm. I don't. I'm just going to admit this. I don't think I've ever seen it. I think I. I think I just sort of like act as though I've seen it. Okay, because it's one, it's one of those know. films that you. I feel like you can get away with acting like you've seen it if you yeah. haven't. True. Yeah, because there's a lot of clips of it. You kind of get the message. A lot of people talk about it. I think like a long when it first came out, I think I didn't see it just because it was it looked scary and I didn't want to watch a dude just kill people. But now I feel like I should have seen it. It's funny horror films. Mm. I. I saw the Blair Witch back in the day, uh-huh. 
Have, did you see that film? Uh-huh. I scared, remember. Scared the shit out of me. Yeah. I mean, that shit, that fucked me up. And then I, I didn't watch a horror film for years it. after. Yeah. That that was the first time, I think Paranormal Activity did it too, but that was the first time, because I remember me and my friends going to the theater and a friend turning to me and saying, this is real. This is like found footage. Like, right. and I, it's weird when you think about it now, like, you mean they found footage and then... Was it actually found footage? <laughs> no. Oh. No, no. <laughs> no, no. But that's how it felt. The, right, the way right. you feel now is how it felt. Like, Are you it, talking about para- paranormal? No, I'm talking about Blair Witch. Oh, Blair Witch, yeah. You, they, like, they, they made that for like 40 grand or something. Right, but the marketing was so good. I don't remember what year this was, like 2000 or something? Around that, yeah. yeah. Mark, so I was just coming out of high school and like the marketing was so good that my friend said to me, like, this is like a real thing. And if you think about it now, you go back and you go, I believe that it was a real thing that then was released in 2000 theaters across the nation. Um, that's maybe not a good, that's not a ring endorsement for my intelligence, but, um, um, yeah, a scary, scary film. It was a scary film. And then, um, I only just started enjoying horror films again recently. Mm. It's like, they, really? yeah, I, like I can, I was like, why do I want to go to see something that's going to scare, scare what the What was the movie me? that brought you back into it? <clears throat> oh, it was the one, the one. Was that, it Get Out? No. I mean, I did see that. Okay. And I didn't consider that a horror film. Yeah, it's more of sort of like a social thriller. Yeah. That's what, yeah. It was the one, the silence one. Uh, oh. I really enjoyed it. Just the, 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 the use of the, of the of the lack of sound was brilliant. The Emily Blunt and John yeah. Krasinski one. What was that called? Silence beneath, between something. Yeah, yeah. So it might just be, yeah. I would Google it, but the tapping is just going to cause havoc with the recording. Yeah. We can, we can do it afterwards. I yeah. Do, I mean, people aren't. Listening for that purpose, but no, they aren't. They're, they're but just... now we have to go on in this interview, pretending that we're not trying to desperately think of the title of that film. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's basically going to sabotage the rest of the interview. That's the thing. Yeah. You're going to ask me questions like, "Huh? What? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of it. Anyhow, yeah, silence beneath or beneath the silence or anyhow. Yeah. When I talk to you, yeah, immediately what jumps out to me is yes. someone who has the mind of an improviser. Yeah, I yeah. That's right. You started. Is that how you kick things off doing improv? That's how I kick things off. I'm. Uh, I would say for about twenty years there, I would. I would have said that if you if you uh, met me somewhere, I would introduce myself as an improviser. I don't think really? I would do that anymore. But um, I would say, yeah, I'm an improviser. I was really into it. I was. I started corporate I was, events as well. You just sort of. I'm an improviser. Like later, sure. Yeah. I mean, sure. Like that's the that's the way I made my living for a long time was to do. Lots of corporate stuff. Really? Lots of corporate Improv stuff. shows. Well, yes, improv shows, but uh, that's actually too. I mean, we'll come into it, I'm sure, but like that's how I got into writing. So, so I, I worked with a company called Boom Chicago yeah. in Amsterdam, which okay. is like a big sort of um, improvisational theater. It's got a lot of, in America, I think people know it a lot more as a place where, you know, you would go and if you were a young, talented, you know, improviser, you would try to get that job and fly out to Amsterdam and do a job for a couple of years. Uh, but one part of that job is um, doing shows across Europe that are um, for companies that, you know, buy you to either do an improvisational show in front of an audience. So that's very much like uh, asking for suggestions and then, you know, playing a scene with your uh, scene partners. But also there would always be a part where you would uh, write a show. It would be okay. a tailored show for them. Right. And I remember I was, uh, Desperate for cash, I remember. I don't remember when this was, like, a few, again, long time ago now. But I was desperate for cash, and I remember asking the director, like, hey, can I write some of these corporate scripts? And he said no. 
<laughs> he said, you're an improviser, so I'm not going to hire you to write. I'm, I'm hiring you to improvise. And I remember finding information on a show that they had done, you know, a few months before. And I had rewritten the whole scripts and showed it to him to show that I could write. I remember. And uh, he said, oh, these are terrible, but, you know, I can change them. And, you know, at least you did it. So I got this job. And then I remember that turned into a that gave me a job where I was deadline writing, where I was writing, you know, four or five corporate shows a week. Wow. You know, and do, do, in the busy season. And it's, all this is in Amsterdam, right? This is in Amsterdam. So they're stationed in Amsterdam, but they, they're sort of, because of where they are, they're sort of, and because they're English speaking, yeah. they're, they sort of have like the corner on corporate improvisation and comedy shows for Europe. So wow. you go everywhere. So how did you end up there? Did did Boom Chicago bring you there? Is that why you came to Amsterdam? So like, place? yeah, that's really. So this is what. So that. So I started improvisation when I was really young because in and I, I grew up in California. Okay. And I was really into whereabouts in in LA, Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not Los Angeles, but I say Los Angeles because nobody out here knows. I grew up in a city called Claremont, which is you know twenty miles east of Los Angeles, but Los Angeles. Um, and I started when I was like fourteen. I started doing uh, improvisation with, uh, oh God, this, is, this is a long time ago, but that with a fourteen, yeah, man. a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. I was a bit of a theater kid when I was younger. I was like a bit of a, I was into it. I was like way into it. I was a bit of a theater geek. That's amazing. Um, but I started doing a thing called comedy sports, which again in America is like sort of this um, kind of popular thing. It's basically like whose line is it anyway? Okay. Here it's called theater sports. Yep. I think there is comedy sports up in Manchester. But I was doing that for about four years. And then when I graduated high school, I moved to L.A. with a few friends and we started doing comedy sports in Los Angeles. And and then I was a part of this other theater called Ultimate Improv for a bit. And while I was at that theater, one of our cast members came in one day for a rehearsal and said, I'm moving to Europe. I just got hired to do this job in Amsterdam. And uh, we were I mean, I, I I didn't know where Amsterdam was like I was a, an American. So I was like, Germany? That's fucking crazy. Um, you're moving to Canada? It's amazing. Um, but I remember she went and did that job for like a year. And then, yeah, I she she then called up and had the rest of us audition. And I went to a theater somewhere in LA. Yeah. And, you know, did a four-hour audition, did some improvisation, um, did some sketches. And then waited a week and got a call and was asked if I wanted to move out to Amsterdam. And, it, you know, that was when I was... 22 wow what an adventure yeah what an adventure so how long were we out there for so most people are only out there for about two years but i stayed for six and a half wow six and a half years and the reason is you just love that weed <laughs> is i'm a massive stoner <laughs> i do think that that does that did play a small part not not to say like drugs but just I really enjoyed it and I didn't imagine. You know, when I was younger, when I was 22. I enjoyed living out there. I loved and the whole, it. The, yeah, I had no idea. There's an interesting thing that happened. Like when I got it, I was like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to do Boom Chicago for a year because that is going to get me on Saturday Night Live. I was delusional. But other people who had done SL or who had done Boom were like Seth Meyers and Jordan Peele. Oh, well, they'd been out to Amsterdam. Yeah, to really? they, were, they were the actors that we were going there to replace. Wow. You know? so, I did not know that. Yeah, so Jordan Peele was out there at the time. There's a really funny actor named Colton Dunn who is an amazing comedian. He's on a show called Superstore out in America. Um, Seth Meyers, Ike Barinholtz, Jason Sudeikis. These are the people who you were like, you know, oh, go to Boom and do what those guys did. Yeah. 
Kay Cannon, who wrote um, um, Pitch Perfect. Um, so that's what I was going to do. I was going like, to go there, do my year of performing, and then like audition for SNL and get it because I was delusional. I thought that I was talented enough to get that. Um, but when I, what happened, and I think this is an interesting thing to people who want to do comedy, is what happened is I started making a living doing comedy. And suddenly what I realized was that I liked that. I liked doing my shows, doing a good show, yeah. um, living, you know, paying my rent, doing a good show, living a good life. And somehow it kind of like, I don't want to say it, you know, it sort of wiped out my motivation, but it certainly like fulfilled me in a way that I wasn't expecting. And I thought, oh, you know what? Like, this is the life. This is what I enjoy doing. I like making, I like paying rent and enjoying my life. And I had a show every night and, and you know, two years turns into a long time. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I could just imagine that just at that point in your life, in your, you know, early mid twenties, yeah. performing improv every night out there in Amsterdam, yeah. having the time of your life. Yes. Yeah. 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 The only time, yeah, I took a break. That's not, I, I, six and a half years wasn't straight because yeah. I took a break some like three and a half years in and I went to Chicago and worked with a company called Second City, which yeah. in America is another thing. But I didn't do like the Second City like show in the main stage. I did their cruise ship shows. So wow. for a year, for a year. I took a break from uh, from Boom Chicago for a year and like traveled like Mexico, the Caribbean, Bermuda, and just did comedy on cruise ships, which is another like weird thing that's like super weird. Oh no! So the so what what's the <laughs> typical audience that you perform in front of? Is it, it depends like- on where you're going. Like if you were going to, there was a time when we were going up north to from we were docked out of Seattle and we would go every week. We'd go up to Alaska, and then all of your audiences are like old. You know, 60, 70 year old yeah. people die on the boat. I remember that. Was yeah. But then if you're like, then we would also be docked out of Los Angeles and we'd go down to, you know, uh, Cabo San Lucas and Puerto Vallarta and all those places. And then, you know, you're, everybody's young and wants to get drunk and have a good time. So your audience has changed. Your show never changed. You kind of had to do the same show every week, but you only had to do one show a week, get paid really well. And I was, again, I was only 20 something. I don't remember what it was. I had a great time. I had a great, 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 great time. Great, and it must have been a like great training ground as well. Yeah, I think performing like such varied audiences. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, like for Amsterdam, that was a big deal because you you know there'd be a group of Dutch people, then a group of Germans, and maybe a stag do in, in the audience, and that would be challenging to sort of yeah. figure out a way of like, uh, yeah, a, 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 you know, making a good show. You know, even though not everybody's like from the same place. And then again with the Second City cruise ships, yeah, you you would. You would get just different types coming in, different energies, different ages. You know, sometimes people would be psyched to see the show. Sometimes people were being forced to watch you. Right. That's another thing, you know, like yeah. people who would rather be like on the deck drinking. Uh, every time that happens, man. I'll, oh, okay. I will. Uh, I will cut out. I always forget that I've. Um the Bluetooth speaker is on and then it has a life of its own. Oh, okay. It sort of switches off. To the listeners, I wonder what that sounded like. It kind of sounded like a little bird came in here and took a dump into a pool. <laughs> we should have just, we should have just gone with that. Yeah. Hey, you, what you get the fuck know? out of here. What did I tell you? A little bird in his living room that takes dumps into pools. Yeah, living the bachelor dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... How then did you go from that to coming over to London and starting your sort of writer creator career? Right. So, yeah. Um, So while I was on the cruise ship, 
I met a dancer who was on the who was also doing um, uh, working on the cruise ship, and we fell in love. And she was British. Okay. And I remember, have you written a sitcom about this yet? Because this I, is I a think, story. Yeah, I think I have pitched this. It's weird though for people listening. Like that cruise ship comedy gets pitched, you know, five sure. or six years, five or six times a year. Right. Yeah. So you gotta like, you know, <laughs> you you sort of spend a month like uh, writing that whole thing out, figuring it out, and then you pitch it, and then like a development executive will say to you, like, yeah, yeah. We've seen this before. But you're like, but this actually happened to me. Yeah. This is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and they go like, yeah, it actually happened to a lot. Of yeah. It's not a thing. Um, <laughs> that's true. That's exactly how it happened. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, no. So like we were on the ship and basically, you know, we were in love and we needed to figure out a way to like stay together. And, you know, she was English and Brexit hadn't happened yet, obviously. So we were like, hey, you know, one place we could live is Amsterdam. And I said, Oh, I had a job there and I got my job back and I flew from the ship back out to Amsterdam. She flew out with me. And then we both lived in Amsterdam for another three years. Um, And then when we left, when we finally decided to leave, it was sort of like a toss up between Los Angeles and London. And I think that I love my country. I love where I'm from. But at the time it wasn't, it didn't feel like a nice place to live. I think, you know, Los Angeles to my wife, um, or my fiance at the time, just, it just didn't click. And it just felt sort of like weirdly dangerous and far away. And, and the traffic's terrible. And I didn't have a lot of ways of defending it really. You know, we would go to LA and we kind of drive around and she'd be like, this is really tough and I don't like it. And I'd be like, yeah, it's kind of tough. I get it. So we tried London and that's how I ended up here. And then that's how I got all the you know, show creator stuff that I did out here. Wow. Basically grinding it out here. Was it not like, um, was it not a challenge because of you saying, you know, you had this idea before when you're going to go to Boom Chicago. Yeah. That you wanted to like follow in the footsteps yeah. of Jordan Peele and these guys. Yeah, yeah. Like, did you envisage... I still want to. Yeah. Hey, buddy, there's still time. Yeah, if um, he's listening. Yeah, for sure. Were you not like keen to then head back to LA because, yes. you know, that is like the center of everything in that yeah. respect? I think it's a little different for people who... This is going to sound so like dumb, but like it's a little different for people who grew up in LA. Like sure. LA is not so much the Mecca for me. I think it's like it is for other people. Of course, yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, for my career, like, yeah, it would be smarter to be there. Yeah. But I was so cocky when I moved out of Boom. And we framed him. I was like, I'll make it anywhere. I really did think that. Okay. And you know, if I had the choice to make over again, I might have pitched a little harder for LA. Really? It is very hard to, as you know, and as people who are listening, uh, the English uh, or the British television sort of scene is tough. It's hard. It's yeah. really hard. And there's not a lot of networks, and there's not a lot of you know routes you can take. Um, but at the time, you know, I was, you know, like I am most of the time, was like a little bit delusional, a little bit arrogant, and a little bit sort of cocky. And I kind of thought, well, I'll do it. I'll be fine. Yeah. And so we gave it a go. And, you know, you know, now I live in London and I love my life in London and I've got a son and a nice career. And so, yeah, I can't really complain. But it's it, – you. It, 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 there were times when I was out here where I thought, oh, my God, I've made a mistake. I should have gone back to L.A. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not going to see the payoff for a while. Like if you're starting from scratch again from somewhere, like you said, it's, yeah. a, it's a hard enough industry anyway, even if you're from here. But yeah. starting again from scratch and you know, you've got to make contacts and all that sort of stuff is tough. Right. I also think that, like I will say that, you know, I was in LA for a bit before I moved out here. So I was, you know, living in LA, I had an agent, I had a manager for, you know, 
uh, up until I left for Boom. So this is like 22, 23. So again, not a long time, but I think people sort of were as people in uh, London have uh, uh, admire Los Angeles maybe a little too much. I think they okay. somehow think what's going to happen is I'm going to go there. <laughs> yeah, you get rose tinted glasses, yeah, and starry yeah, eyes. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's, it's I'm going to go to Hollywood. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's it's there's a weird thing. I'll say this, and I don't know if I'll get in trouble for any of this, but it's just the truth. Like you know, in the UK, you know. I, I think uh, it's hard. I think it's hard. It's it can be very isolating in Los Angeles, and it can be a very tough to get around just to see people. Sure, you know, because you're always in your car. Yeah, um, and you don't have that out here, even in London, a big city. I think there's a lot. Um, more, there's bigger. There's a bigger effort to to get out, see people. There's more like live shows happening. It feels yeah. so. I th- I don't think it's all bad. I think. I think what happens, and maybe maybe people listening to this, or maybe you know what I mean, is like a lot of us know somebody who's gone off and worked in LA, and then sometimes we hear about the money that they make and compare sure. to the amount of money we make out here, yeah. and we sort of think, oh my god, if only you know, if yeah. only I could, you know, you know, sell a show out there instead of selling a show out here. The budget, the budget, the budget is much bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have more room. I could cast this person, and that's sort of the fantasy, and that kind of stuff is true, but. I don't think you have to live um, in LA to pursue, you know, a career in television and be fulfilled. And no. a lot of those guys who a lot of people admire move back here. You know, a lot of the guys who people you can come back after a while. Yeah, yeah. Think, well, it's a good city. Yeah, and I think like also, you know, with things being online now, you can shoot anything anywhere and That's just right. get your stuff out there. That's right. The whole social media has changed the game completely. That's right. And also, you know, you're getting a lot of US productions coming over to shoot here now because it's cheaper for them and they get tax breaks and all that sort of stuff. That's so right. it's changed the game a lot in that respect. Yeah, that's exactly right. You nailed it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think. Um, it's weird that you bring it up because I think a lot of the times when I w- w- um, meet people, I'll go to like a meeting or I'll meet, you know, or I'll go on set or something and people are always amazed to hear my accent. They sort of think, what's wrong with you? Why would you, why do, why would you leave? Why are you here? Yeah. Um, it's and also that's probably down to the weather as well. Not just the, yeah, they all think the that career thing. In LA, everybody's living on the beach. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> LA is, does have nice weather, but also like in July, it can be incredibly Too hot. Much, yeah. I mean, like ridiculously hot. Um, not to say that it's bad. I mean, the weather is nice there, but I just think people are really, people here are always surprised that I live here and I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, Londoners should have, you know, more of a, a sense of pride, not to say that they don't, but London's not a bad city and healthcare is free. So what can you say? Yeah. Well, I think as, as a, as just in general, we had a, a lot more pride before Brexit. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's change the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so where are you from? <clears throat> Sorry, where was that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's true. Yeah, I, I get I get weird questions about Brexit too from my American family. They kind of want they kind of want me to explain it, and it's weird because it's kind of I don't think we could really explain it to somebody. Like, explain to me why Brexit happened. Well, I I, I don't know something. I don't know. I don't really know. Something in the air, man. There's you know, that Trump is sort of like this knocking effect. Is yeah. like. Let's just see how much we can fuck shit up. Yeah, yeah. It was. Why like, not? It'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. What could happen? What could be the worst that happens? Our nations are going through a sort of weird midlife crisis. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Okay, so it leaves me on nicely. Brexit. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
borderline. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Immigration. Yes. See why I did that little segue? Yeah, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> very nice uh, I actually wrote, I actually uh, co-created that show with uh, Chris Gow. Yes. Of those there. Um, Which I wanted, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. how you guys met and all that. I that came up with that show, I remember, when I got kicked out of this country. I read this. <laughs> I got kicked out. You like, actually got kicked out of the country. I got kicked out. God, man, actually, I bring it up. It's just such a... So what happens was I was like living... I was living in Amsterdam for a long time and okay. I had my... You know, I had a little residency card that said I could be... Live in the EU. And because I was living in the EU, I... Uh, my fiance was living here in London, actually in Cambridge, but blah, blah, blah. And I would fly back and forth and see her and go back to Amsterdam for a, a couple months there while we were trying to get set up here. And I went through and I just met one of these immigration officers of one of these border agents who was just having a bad day and um they've got so much power those guys and um and i was also having a bad day and he sort of asked he sort of pointed out i think rightly that i had like a lot of stamps from amsterdam and gatwick airport and thought that was kind of weird and i think he was right mm-hmm. um but it just sort of escalated <laughs> Once he once he discovered the weed in your pocket, you forgot. <laughs> I was stoned. Um, he he uh, he. Uh, I don't remember what it was, but I remember one time he looked at me and he said, "You're winding me about." I remember that very. What well. he said, "You're winding me about." Interesting and I turn said, of phrase. Yeah, and I remember being like, "I don't know what you mean." And then I was taken to like a basically a jail cell. Like you, wow. you get taken to this cell. Um, while they're going to like sort of interview again. And that was fascinating because you sit with four or five other people also who are about to be removed from the country. And I remember it was me. It was a rap artist who <laughs> who was like going to come and do rap uh, somewhere up in, you know, uh, East Anglia. And, um, do you remember his name? No, I don't remember his name. God, I wish. That, that man was Drake. <laughs> yeah, what a great reunion. Um, he was from Jamaica, I remember. Um, and then like some lady from Ukraine who was sort of really pissed. She was really mad. Um, and we all just kind of sat there. And in this cell, it's definitely a jail cell. They shut the door and it's got like bars. Right. And they have a huge key that locks it. And the person who locks it is a police officer. Okay. And you're stuck in there. But they put a little array of... This is weird. They put Walker's Crisps <laughs> in the corner. And then they were playing uh, Homes Under the Hammer on BBC, like up at the corner. <laughs> so British. It's so British. They were saying to us, none of us were allowed in. So it's not like this Jamaican rap artist was ever going to watch Homes Under the Hammer or like be interested in the housing market. <laughs> like, I didn't know what they were expecting us Dude, to me. They're just trying to use tactics to like put them off ever coming back again. Yeah, come back. Here's an episode of Homes of the Hammer. So you like, and we just sort of sat there for six hours watching episodes of Home of the Hammer and eating Walker's crisps. And then, you know, they pull you out and they interview you and they kind of, it's very, it's a very weird sort of thing. And I remember doing that whole process. I was like thinking, I'm very angry. I remember thinking that I'm very angry and I feel very sort of like offended that I'm being sort of accused of a crime. But there were a lot of them. They were in this office and they were all sort of in the back and they all had like sort of status and relationships and and their job was also hard. And I remember one woman came in and sort of uh, sort of apologized for what was happening to me and explained to me why she had to kick me out of the country, which was that I had sort of come into it too often and I ended up not having my residency card on me and I had proof of it, but I didn't have it on me, blah, blah, blah. So they had to kick me out. And I just remember thinking 
as angry as I am, the job that they have seems like it sucks. And I started thinking of the show there. Oh, so that's like in a, a, in a way it's quite empathetic, but empathetic of you in that situation. I don't know. A, a lot of people guy. would. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one thing you should know. I I think like to to to. I think my first few drafts, mine and Chris's first few drafts, were a bit more angry. Right. Okay. You know, we were like, we're going to show them, but, but you know that that thing about that woman walking in and she didn't like her job. You could tell she didn't like what she had to do. She might sure. she might like her job, but, um, and I thought that that was just interesting. So I think Chris and I were in this mode where we were trying to think of shows to pitch, and you know I just came back after being kicked out, and I said like, let's pitch this. I think it'd be a really good idea, and it kind of went from there. You know. Great. So just to take a couple of steps back, how did you and Chris meet? We met doing improv. So improv is a great way of meeting other like-minded people. I'm sure stand-up's the same. I think improvisation has a um, sort of a cooperative um, sort of, um, not to say that stand-up doesn't, but there's a theme of cooperation in, sure. in improvisation that I think gets people collaborating a lot more. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard. <laughs> I think as an improviser, I can say this. Sometimes it's hard to get improvisers to like sit down and do the work. Like yeah. sometimes like I always say that improvisers are a lot of like, they're kind of like first draft writers. They kind of go like, yeah, yeah we, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> you said that I said, this isn't this great. All right, let's type it up. Like that's kind of what they're, what they're like, which is a great way to be. But, um, um, it can sometimes, yeah, it would be hard, but they're very good at sort of collaborating and getting together improvisers. And that's how we met. We met uh, doing improv together. And then- Was that we, the FA? This was before the FA. All oh, right, okay. The FA hadn't even, wasn't even um, started yet. Hadn't okay. even started yet. Uh, this is at a place called Monkey Toast, which was run yeah. by a guy named- David Shore. David Shore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who's a Canadian who was doing, um, or who was, he's not dead, he's alive. But- um, <laughs> Uh, he's dead. I it. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so yeah, David Shore was uh, an improviser out here doing, uh, is an improviser out here doing um, improvisation. He's since moved back to Toronto, but that's how we met. And then, um, yeah, we we sort of had this show and we had these agents and they kind of shopped it around with us. And yeah, I think one thing, if I could, if I could, if I could say, the one thing I always want to tell people about it is like, it took two and a half years from coming up with that show to like walking onto set for episode crazy long, isn't it? Development process is crazy long, super long and very difficult. And, um, you know, you know, you've got to generate a lot of ideas so that you can get, have a lot of things in development and you have to then imagine that none of them are going to get made, right. which is sort of really difficult, I think, uh, for people to get used to. Um, but how was it working with the channel in terms of getting notes from them? On channel the was great. Yeah. Channel was I'm going to say the man's name right now, Ben Frow, Channel 5, the best commissioner in the world. That guy, I'm trying to think what I can say. Um, that guy so uh, is so confident and uh, understands his job so well that he was as hands-off as, as he could be. He, he was sort of just like, you guys do whatever you want. Um, which, you know, is a... Is a that could be a challenge. Sometimes you want notes to kind of rein it in, but but considering that we were new, we didn't have a lot of money to make the show. Right. Um, we didn't have a lot of time to make the show. That he allowed us to just sort of make it without coming on set or sending you know his assistants on wow. set. Wow, was like really nice. That's a lot of free reign. Yeah, yeah, great. And and we working with a production company. We worked with a production company called Little Rock Productions, which was um, Ralph Little, Little and Zoe Rasha. Um, 
I think people here know Ralph Little. Yeah, of I'm course. Sure. He was yeah. the narrator of the show, wasn't he? Right, narrator of the show. Yeah. But also he did, I mean, he's, you know, of course, I don't need to explain who Ralph Little is. Um, Zoe Rasha, who is this like sort of really, really talented producer um, who now does a lot more like movies. And they were like, they had just started too. So they were like sort of a new product company and we were these new show creators and the energy was definitely there. And we just sort of like, maybe kind of were more confident than we should have been. Mm -hmm. And we kind of just walked in there and just, yeah, got the whole thing done. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, If you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. A lot of credit goes to Ralph, who um, was able to really pitch the show and get it sold. And then a lot of credit goes to Zoe, who was able to just steer the ship and get the thing made, even though we didn't have a lot of money. We had, like, no money to make the show. Yeah. Great. And how how does your writing partnership work? Do you, like, have different roles or... And and when you're writing, do you, do, you, do you are you always together, or do you go back and forth over email? And, and just- we do we do both. I mean, um, we it's a good question. Um, we both do our own separate writing as well. So okay. like, um, so sometimes we'll come together. We come together on projects. Like we just finished this um, this little taster pilot that we did um, just last week. It just finished, and for that. Um, we'll both sort of like pitch ideas and that kind of that process will happen sort of just through like email or phone calls or whatever. And then we'll usually get together um, for an outlining process, I would guess I would call it, which is sort of talking about what the approach will be for whatever scene or script you're writing and what sort of the beats, how will it form itself? And that, that will be done together. Um, and then we sort of both go away, I think, and kind of, sort of chew on it i think um that's not um that just happens naturally i okay. think somehow you know sure. it's sort of like if you spend all day working on something it kind of stays with you for a long time sure and um yeah then we'll come back if there is like a thing where we need to like do the typing we usually try to be in the same room for that um like you know we're writing dialogue and, and is one of you always a designated typer or does it vary uh, I think I'm the designated typer. I think just because I'm quick. I'm just okay. a very fast typer. Yeah. Uh, I took a typing class in high school. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm definitely sort of the designated typer. But that doesn't mean – but Chris types too, you know. So just sort of – it sort of um, – yeah, it sort of works that way. I think I think in between projects, I think sometimes people ask us if 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 what we do is then – always get together and that's not always true so if we're not sort of working on a project we'll both kind of work on our own and do sort of own things sort of like i'm working on a sitcom right now that's a a dutch sitcom so that that one i've been writing by myself okay and what do you enjoy more do you enjoy writing together more or or doing both both i think chris would say the same and i think by the way i think um you i i don't know 
if it if all writing partnerships do this, but I think you've got to have some time away. Sure. I think if you It's like a marriage. Yeah, that's right. You gotta have some space. Yeah, that's right. I think so. And I think also we both met um sort of later. Like I think when we both met, we were both like well into our thirties okay. and had both had he had had a comedy career here in the UK and I'd done all the stuff in Europe and America and stuff. So we sort of met came to it's not like we sort of started in college or something we sort of met sort of fully formed and i think uh that was really good but i also think that means that we're both sort of also happy to sort of you know go and work on other projects and that that's a good pace because that means we kind of get together maybe four or five times a year and sort of work on these projects that we're selling and it can be very intensive but then there's a break after sure. which i think is super important I great think super important yeah another question um, yeah. i had for you how do you do you find working with directors on on your shows because it's this thing where you you know you've created this project it's your baby and now you're handing that vision over to somebody else is that a challenge yes yeah that's a really good question that is a challenge for me because i would say that i am controlling is what i would say i think i um Obviously, when you're writing and you're creating, it's also sort of playing out in your head. Sure. And I think it's hard sometimes to hand it over. I mean, I'd love to say something romantic like, no, man, you just got to be able to. Like, but I'm not so zen. Zen. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's hard. I'm not so mature. But uh, I know that I'm not so mature. And what I try to do is uh, stay away from uh, the director. I think what you do, I mean, you meet a good DP. There's a guy who we use a lot named Andy Roger, who's an amazing uh, DP and um, a director we use a lot named Matt Jones, who's a great director. And you kind of realize that I, if I did say anything or if I did offer, I think I'd screw it up. Um, and you got to get good at doing that. So, um, yeah, I try to stay as far away from the shooting as possible. Really? So, yeah. are you not on set then when you're shooting? I haven't quite hit that stage yet. Okay. I haven't hit the don't be on set stage, okay. um, but I'm fast approaching it. And I do think it's wise maybe to not always show up on set. But what I do is I'll have my audio um, so I can hear the scene, okay. which is important to me. But I will try to get out of the cruise way and I'll right. try to go into another room or around the corner or whatever. Um, if there's a way I can sort of peek in and see it, that's good. But I try not to. So, um, so you won't give notes to actors like you know if you want someone to say in a slightly different inflection like different to how you envisaged it will you never sort of turn around or would you and if so would you like turn around to the director and say would you mind if we do a take like that I that's a good question I um, I guess it depends I try not to talk to, direct, to the actors because I think they just have so many people there talking to them sure. you know like the director's talking to them yeah. but then also you know it's hard. I mean, like the actors get moved around by like the makeup lady comes in and moves them and stuff. So they got a lot of people who are talking to them. If there is a problem, if something isn't going well, and I, and I don't think it's my fault, which often I do, if something isn't going well, it's usually, oh, I wrote you a bad scene. Sorry. Okay. Um, um, then I will speak to the director, I think. To, right. Um, I'm saying all this, though, with one scene playing out of my head where I ended up talking to the actor. <laughs> so I feel like I'm lying when I say it, but um, that was a case in which I was really, I know the actor really comfortable with him and, and um, I, you know, have a long relationship with him. So I was able to come in there and yeah, say sure. to him, but 
Uh, typically, I wouldn't talk to the to the actor. It's interesting. I'm interested, but I'm also I'm interested to hear what other people do. It's interesting. It's interesting to hear like what other people's processes are. I'm always so thankful if an actor can make what I write sound good. I'm mm. always so blown away by that. I'm always sort of like, oh my god, I can't believe it sounds better than it even did in my head. Um, um, rarely have I run into a situation where. And it's usually just a casting decision if this is a problem. But rarely have I ran into a situation where I thought, "Oh, this actor just can't do it; isn't doing a good job." Yeah, because by that point, you, by that point, you've gone through the audition stage. Yeah. You're pretty certain you've, you, who, right. who you've got for the role is correct. That's and, right. And those auditions. And so I do sit through castings. So okay. you know, so like, and that is a you know an integral part of making a show. So that part is important. But once it is casted, you know. I sort of let people get on with it. By the time it's on set, you've been with it. You know, again, like the borderline is a good example. Like we were with it for two years. So by the time we got on set, you know, you've been with that thing for a long time. Yeah. And in a weird way, it's, you feel really protective and controlling because you don't want people to screw up all the hard work you've done. But once you see, see things working, it's a relief to kind of let the pros get on with it. It's a relief for sure. me. Anyhow. So will you also take a step back then in the post side of things, like edit. Would you would you be in? Would you sit on the edit, or do you just leave that to the director? I, I, you know, you always let the director and the editor have a pass. They're always very like good at it. Yeah. Um, and I'm terrible at, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you know, they put they'll put together a, an assembly or some big capture, and everybody watching. I'm terrible at that. Like I, I can't. <laughs> I can't discern from like one big broad take and I always panic. I was like, so I try to stay away from the beginning okay. of the editing process where they're just piecing the whole thing together. But I do come in in the end and um, I will come in the end and sign that off because, you know, eventually it's, you know, like I always said, like we just had this big sort of um, editing session and we had a, we had a debate about a big choice that was being made in the piece and ultimately, it came down to this, which was that me and Chris are the ones who have to go sell this thing, and it's got to have our name on it, and we have to go and, you know, believe in it. Yeah. And so that means that, you know, if it comes between something that you, the two of us wanted, and something that somebody else who is very talented and very good wants, it sort of has to tilt towards what we want, or else it's sort of, we can't sort of... Yeah, pitch it, believe, you know, faithfully. So sometimes those kind of decisions come up and you got to make them. And But I have to say, it rarely happens. And usually people are very, very, very good. Editors are good. Yeah. Um, um, directors are good. You know, like actors are good. And it's fun to be working with good people. So, yeah. I'm sure your improv, all those years doing improv, yeah. must have um, helped shaped a collaborative approach so yeah. now you're working in you know the tv side of things yeah. you're used to that you've been doing it for years so yeah. it's probably yeah. something that comes very naturally to you mm -hmm. i think so yeah i think so i think um yeah i think so i think i do have i think i'm naturally collaborative i think um i love it um when people um can throw an extra line in there or, or i love it when somebody has something to pitch um because it was semi-improvised wasn't it it was semi. I mean, the scripts were written. I mean, the thing about it is you have to write the scripts and they have sure. to be rewritten and they have to have a development phase because the studio or the network in this case is giving you money and nobody yeah. wants to give you money. Or at least it's been my experience that nobody wants to give you money sort of not knowing. And also, this is a really important thing to say, I think. As an improviser, I feel like I can say it, but maybe people will disagree. But 
I think this is true. I- improvisers who come on set and want to improvise in a show on your television show mm-hmm. don't really want to. <laughs> they, it sounds like I'm going against what I'm selling, but what I really mean is they want to not be allowed to improvise and do it anyways. Got you. They don't want to show up and have the whole thing resting on their improvisation. Well, there's a lot of pressure on that. Yeah. It's too much pressure and um, there's too many people watching and they're not watching for the right reasons. They're sort of analyzing it while they're watching it. So Chris and I, so some of Borderline was improvised because some of the actors are good improvisers. David Helms is a phenomenal improviser. Um, But not all of them felt comfortable improvising. And so we wrote the show and the show is, you know, as written as any show is, it's about how you approach it when you show up on set and whether you're going to allow an actor say, Hey, can I say something here? And you say, yeah. And that's sort of the approach we've got. We allow people to feel, if they feel comfortable um, to add and we sort of embrace that and that's fun, but we always make sure we get a take as written. We always, maybe even two takes as written. And then we sort of let the actors sort of, add in after that but you don't want to improvise in my opinion you don't want to improvise unless it was a situation in which you were sort of working with a troupe that you you've known for you know decades or something sort of like christopher guest does or something i don't think you want to show up and give actors panic attacks so i like to allow it to happen and i certainly like to give the vibe that i'm okay if you add something or throw something in but i also like to make you have faith in the script so that you don't feel like you've got to, you know, make the show great, which yeah. I think is important to do to, for actors, I think. Yeah, for sure. And then you've got that nice balance between hitting your beats and getting yeah. everything you need and then giving them freedom to improvise if they yeah. choose to. And they also, when they do improvise, things come out more naturally. Like they, you know, they sometimes they'll have a line that you write and it's a good line, but it doesn't work for them. So they kind of change it. And that kind of stuff I love. I love, I love it when you beat my joke. I love that. I love stuff. I love making the crew laugh. I love all that stuff. Um, I do though. It's funny when people come and work with us, they do think, Oh, here are the improv guys. And they think they're going to, you know, they can toss out the script when actually it's sort of like, no, let's stick to the script. And, and, and you can kind of add where you want, but we don't want you to sort of toss it out. We don't write. There was a there was sort of like a myth going around about Borderline that like Chris and I would just sort of like write paragraphs, sort of like outlines, like Larry David. Cut, yeah. yeah. But that's not the way we did it. We we spent a lot of time writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting scripts. And so yeah, that's like almost slightly annoying. It's like no, a little bit. Guys, yeah. we we worked our ass off doing yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, because. You know, it was great marketing for the show, which is what we really liked. But okay. there was a, there was a bit. Chris and I were we did find ourselves in meetings and meeting people saying like, "No, no, no, we you know we we put as much work in the script and developing it as much as you know anybody does. You know, yeah. you have to do that." Um, but you know, we we were working with people who we really like, um, Jackie Clune and uh, Liz Kingsman and, and great improvisers. So we thought, yeah, let's let's let them have fun, and that was what we were doing. Um, and it was a good time and it made for, you know, here's some of the benefits of it. It made for the set was super fun. Yeah. Uh, we shot the first season in 12 days. Um, wow. So all six episodes. Um, the reason why we were able to do that was we were, we went through three weeks of rehearsing. So the, sh- the scripts were all written and then we went three weeks of rehearsing the scripts over and over again, just in a room with the actors so that when they showed up on set, they remember they were off book. Everybody was just cool. And you were just able to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And they would sort of try things and you could just run all day. You were shooting entire episodes in 
three days and stuff. So that was really cool. It was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So are you still performing improv now? I don't do it anymore. I, 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 I will do the off. I'll do like the one off show somewhere around. Somebody will ask okay. me to come and do a show and I'll be like, all right, cool. If you, if you make it easy and I don't have to do anything when I show up, I'll come and do the show. Um, but it's mainly writing. Okay. That was a big choice. And like, I don't want to get boring on this podcast, but I think like there's a big moment in my life when I was doing improvisation and I, uh, I didn't realize that it was getting in the way of my work. You, there comes a moment, this, comes, this happens with a few other improvisers I know who love improvisation, but it can become, it can get in the way. It can get in the way of... Is that just because you've only got a certain amount of energy to dispense? And so if you're doing shows in the evening and then you come home late, you wake up knackered and it just has a knock-on effect. Is that part of it? Definitely a part of it, but also, and this is like super... Guru, yeah, I can say that to you because you are a guru, but like Namaste very much. Namaste. It's it can satisfy your need for approval. Okay. So like you can this was my problem. I, I I'm personalizing this, so I don't have to say it's like this for every improviser, but like a lot of people who I think do improvisation, um love getting in front of an audience and performing and if you're an actor it can be this great supplement to your acting career you can maybe go on an audition and then that night do an improv show and it's great you can go rehearsals and you know get better at improv and all that stuff for me as as a writer it was something that i would do to feel valid dated. So I would get on stage and if I got a laugh, I would remember I was funny. I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm good at this. I remember. Right. But the muscles I'm using to get laughs in an improv show have nothing to do with the fourth draft of my pilot script that is due on Friday. You know, like Interesting. it's not the same muscle. And what it what it what it was doing is it was it was making me feel like I was doing work and accomplishing stuff and I was doing nothing. I, okay. I wasn't I wasn't advancing my career at all. Um, I was getting laughs. I was performing for our groups and I loved it. And I, you know, I was, and you know, again, I've been doing it for 20 years, but there came a moment when I sort of had, had, this is going to sound so arrogant, but like I had to put my big boy pants on and just sort of, you know, say, Hey, what I want to do here is right. Yeah. It's just, but you're just prioritizing. Makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. 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 yeah, Makes sense. Yeah. So you mentioned that you are a dad. Yes. Is that, is that a new thing? Yeah, he's only six months old, six months and uh, two weeks. And that's interesting. Like, um, like for example, I got two hours of sleep last night. Maybe, uh, um, You're looking good for it, my friend. Thank you. It's very nice of you to say. I feel terrible. But um, um, yeah, so that, 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 affects, that affects things. Like I've been working on a show called uh, Bosha Bolin, which is, again, a Dutch sitcom. But like, you know, I've had deadlines. I've had all my normal stuff. But there's this thing that I love to death that's keeping you up and makes it hard and demands more of your time and demands more of you. And not only that, but you want to hang out with them. You want to see them and you want to be around them and stuff. And so. So does it affect your working yes. schedule now? Yes. Yeah. yeah big time. So it's what getting up later or. It's harder. It's harder to get out. I'm just going to be super real here. It's harder to get out of the house as early as I used to be able to, to get yeah. to write. It's harder to go far away if I wanted to write. So if I wanted to go into the city and write, it's kind of, I'm too far away from my son and my wife who's on maternity leave. So sometimes I feel like I have to come back. When he starts nursery, I'll have to end my day at four. So I'll have to, you know, push my writing all up. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm one of those guys who doesn't write well in the morning. I'm sort of like really? a kick in around like noon. Maybe I'm kind okay. of more awake and can do more stuff. Yeah. In the morning, I'm a guy who can, 
just everything feels really difficult in the morning because okay. I'm sort of a night owl. Um, so yeah, it definitely changes a lot of stuff. Another way though I'll say is that it's a lot more motivating. Like you sort of, I want this child of mine to have a good life and I want to, you know, you know, provide. And so you end up pitching a lot more. You end up taking meetings that you might not, you might be too snooty to take. You might, yeah. you know, you know, you're sort of more, you're less, yeah, you're less um, picky about what you do, I think. Okay. Interesting. And um, do you write at home every day? I write everywhere. Do you? Uh, that's a good so you've question. Got, you've got no fixed spot. No. I write everywhere. I write, um, I write at home. Yes. I have a little room and I, I write at home. I will go to a cafe and write. Um, it's, it's, it depends, you know, I mean, like it depends on what I'm doing. It depends on what my focus needs to be. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it depends on whether I'm writing something for, to try to sell in three months or if I'm writing something that's already been bought and I need okay. to finish it. Yeah. Um, I'm on a deadline now and, you know, I need to finish this by Friday. So this is much more like working at home, you know, closing the door, putting your head down and writing. But the fun stuff sometimes is waking up and going to a cafe and, you know, people watch and kind of write. That's good people too. People watching is the best thing. Yeah. yeah. I do think that like sometimes you hear writers say bullshit things like, well, I only write, you know, in a room like – you know, the artist way, I need to like, you know, I need to be quiet. And it's kind of like bullshit. Like you can do that and that does help. And sometimes that helps you focus and finish the deadline. But also like sometimes going out and writing and going to a cafe, that can help. Like it, it, sure. I don't know why it can it engage you. It, it's sort of in a weird way too. I don't know if you feel this, but like if people see me writing, sometimes I play the part of a writer, <laughs> yeah. which somehow makes me write more. I'm something like, well, I, here I am writing. You're drinking coffee, but I'm writing. Yeah. You know, like, I'm the cliched writer. Yeah. Me. In a weird way, that's motivating. And like, so I do, I do it all. I, um, when Chris and I write together, we meet at a place, we meet uh, at a little office and we'll sort of sit down and write together. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'll write anywhere. I write late at night. I write in the morning. There's no, it's sort of well, it's, no fixed abode. No, no fixed abode. Right. Okay. No. That's good. I write every day though, and like I think that's important. You can't for sure. You can't skip a day. You can't pretend that, in my view, you can't pretend that this writing is this thing that you dip in and out of. So weekends as well. <laughs> He's not I, a part timer. I think I. I don't know. I mean, I I wrote this weekend, so but I I think. It depends on whether you enjoy it. I mean, like finding an hour or two and writing on the Saturday doesn't really get in the way of your Saturday, does it? No. Um, but I do think I do think at least Monday through Friday, if you are a writer, you should be writing. Yeah. I don't believe in that whole thing of like, well, you don't have to. Like, I mean, write, you know, come up with something, generate things. There's a huge appetite for content now. People want ideas all the time. So there's no real reason why you shouldn't be doing it. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be irrelevant, this question, because you are new into fatherhood, but yeah. would you do hobbies outside of writing in your career in general? What's your downtime consist of? Have you got certain rituals you need to like get away and get clear your head? Oh my God. Wow. That's a really good question. I think I need to do that, Okay, but I'm not very good at it. Okay. I think if you leave- Have you, you always not been very good at not it? Not very good at it. No. Right. Very good at having too many things I'm doing. Okay. You know, juggling. Like, Juggling way too many sort of things. Sure. I love it though. If I could just stand up for it, because I think right now, (laughs) sometimes you say that and you sound like, I sound like a guy who like can't put down his phone and is like, you know, always just like distracted and thinking about things. But I fucking love uh, coming up with shows and ideas and writing them down and having, if I got six or seven things that I'm kind of like 
you know, are in my head that I'm kind of juggling around. I love it. So I don't want to say it is my hobby, but. Um, you're, you're, you're doing what you love for your I career. So yeah, I do love it. Your I, hobby's I'm, become your career, even sure. though you've been doing it for years and years. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I feel very fortunate, but um, uh, I love it. I, I, I don't, you know, I should bike or I should like, I don't know, play basketball or something, but I don't. So you don't, okay, so exercise out the window? Yes, as Medi- you can clearly see. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a fit person. Um, by the way, as and when you said, as you can clearly see, because it wasn't picked up as see, because there was an yeah. audio reaction for me, I gave a shrug and said, well, don't be hard on yourself, kind of thing. So yeah. there was, there was, but then you, but there then was sympathy you, coming from but me. But then you pointed at your eyes and pointed at me, <laughs> and then you, you mimed a spoon. <laughs> And you just We're gonna edit this bit out, cut this bit out. And then you took your finger and you mo- moved it on your nose so that you had a pig nose. Now, um, hey, fatty. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I would not say I'm a athletic person. I'm not. You know, I am a guy who sits all day and writes. Yeah. And we talk. We, no, but you know what you you know what you like and you like what you know. I know what I like and I like and what we, I know. And we so. talked briefly before we start recording about uh, you being an atheist. Yes. And so, the oh my idea- god! I just realized my mom hears it. That's going to be a big thing. Uh, yes, I am though. Yes. Are you coming out live on air? No, I think my mom knows I'm an atheist, but I don't think she likes to hear me say it. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's why well, she is she religious? Super religious. My mom is you know, super spiritual. Went to, sent me to church every Sunday. Oh wow! Growing up, um, still goes to the church maybe twice a week. Uh, I went to seminary. Like my, I think my mom would have almost been a priest. I I think, or I, I don't know. Okay. Woman priest is called. Are they just called priests? I think they're called. Yeah, it's, it's not a priestette. I mean, it's, it's a priest. I think. Hey, yikes! I was. I look bad. I look bad for that. But yeah, yeah. so I grew up in a religious um, with religious parents. Not in a religious household. I think we're definitely liberal and lefty, but um, and and sort of secular in a way. But like, um, but um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea of meditation doesn't really appeal. Is it something you've ever dabbled in? No, I think meditation is different than believing in God, right? I think, no, I like, think that's... I guess the, the, there's a spiritual link there. Although obviously you can do secular meditation, right? Yeah. Is it is that something that you've ever done or appeals to you? Or uh, doing meditation? Never done it. Yes, it appeals to me. I think that people, if by virtue of the fact that so many people who do what I do do it, do, and talk yeah, about okay, it, and talk about it, and being able to help. Uh, them so yes I'm, I'm I think when I say that I'm atheist I just mean to say that you know I don't believe in any religion but I think you know a lot of people do meditation because it's a good exercise for your sort of well-being in your in, in your mind and, and stuff so yeah for sure like, do you ever have um when you're like you, you are you are you, you oh I'm big on that you're stuff. big on meditation yeah. what's the difference between trans and transcendental meditation and just regular meditation so transcendental is when you're given a um uh, like a saying uh, that you repeat or a, f- a few words, whatever it is. And only you supposedly are given that very specific phrase. Okay. And you you will repeat that phrase over and over again. Yeah. And you focus on that and then it will get you in a transcendental state, supposedly. Ah. Then there's what I would do is more, I guess, more of a Buddhist tradition, uh, which is mindfulness of breathing, where you focus on the breath. And there's right. another one called Metta Bhavna, which is about developing compassion for yourself and those oh. around you. But based on how empathetic you were towards the uh, borderline uh, yeah. security, it sounds like you don't even need that. Uh, so, again, um, I said I was a great person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you, are you, 
have you done that thing where you like um don't talk for 10 days at, like that? i have done yet yeah. so that's What's the, that the like? traditional one is vipassana vipassana i think i've got that run or maybe i'm mispronouncing it and um, i did again i did a buddhist version of that which is slightly more chill so it's yeah. like seven days silence and three days well, a lot of chatting you know just to get the chatting out of the way it was a game changer man i love it i love it i try and go on a couple of retreats a year really but yeah. when you say game changer what do you mean what what part of what rules of the game changed good question it's just so you before you were saying you know you like this idea of juggling i'm the same yeah. i run on adrenaline you know I, I yeah. you know, just keep moving keep moving keep moving which is why it's so important for me to do it because it's the rare time really the only time where i'm able to completely just clear my mind it's like having a car and getting an mot yeah okay you've got to get you've got your mind needs an mot every now and then you don't yeah. even realize it needs an mot until you get it done you're yeah like, oh, are you shit. like a person you're like uh struggles with sleeping and stuff uh i can do i'm uh adhd so you know i've got super excess energy and so i'm always looking for ways to just yeah just to just to get it out there yeah Uh, so i'll exercise loads i'll do meditation so that will helps so i guess it depends if you're like a super chill guy it it might not be something that is as necessary for me it's something that's always helped but it also i'm I'm sure it helps with creativity as well because i find it's like when you have those moments where you're just you're letting your subconscious take over Mm. that's where a lot of those i I find anyway a lot of the ideas will come to me did you feel it immediately like when you came back from the retreat was it an immediately immediate effect or was it sort of the thing you look back a couple weeks and you go oh yeah okay i see how this has changed it's immediate the the thing with it is is that you know a week in a week back or so or 10 days back you then slip back into your, right. your, your your mode because you're back in you you're back into everyday life right so, and you yearn for the peaceful sort of like mindfulness of, of only a week ago when you're around the thing yeah i mean i wouldn't say i yearn from it like i'll always take something from it that i won't even know at the time right. will have a long lasting effect on me it might even just be some breakthrough thought or something about yeah. something i might need to change in my life or something like that but in terms of yeah that immediate effect where you just feel like you're floating yeah that's only going to last so long when you're living in london i imagine that when you do the 10 days like you're kind of uh isolated you're you're not you're like in some kind of retreat or some kind of like place right yeah it's it's not isolated you can do solitary retreats but these ones are group ones and often because i've been going to this place called the london buddha center in bethnal green now for the last like four or five years yeah so i know a lot of the crew there so when we go there you know when we did the silence thing last year you go off on these walks and and the countryside you're supposed to be inside so me and a friend did it and we broke the silence and we ended up just having (laughs) we ended up talking about tax right there you go (laughs) and someone walks past and they're they're looking at us and we broke into silence and we're like out of all the topics (laughs) yeah tax tax man that's my meditation um Um, yeah exactly it's how i get off but it's like because i guess what i was wondering is like i imagine that somebody comes out of this retreat and they're sort of elevated and, and 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 things sort of like you know, are clear for once. And then this big, huge London bus like comes by. Is that, is that the experience? There. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, in terms of, yeah, you just- Yeah, like all of a sudden, is it just like sensory overload? Okay. You walk out and you're just like, yeah. this dude in this Greg's is talking so fucking loud. Hey, buddy, yeah. I just spent 10 days not talking. You know, yeah. Do you have that? Just pipe it down a bit. Yeah. I, I did one of my first retreats I did about five years ago. Yeah. We got a coach back and they dropped me off from where I was living at the time in East London. There's just like this super frenetic food market right outside my flat where I was living. Yeah. And you have to go through it and there's just crowds everywhere and it smells and it's just, it was so intense. Yeah. 
that was uh, that was like a very severe contrast from where I'd just been. And I just right. I had to bolt myself up for a few hours just right. like to decompress. Yeah. You know what you should do is, here's a pitch to you. Is you should go on one of these retreats where you don't talk for how many days? 10 days. Wait, seven to 10 days. The yeah. first time you speak should be a podcast. It's a good idea. Like you. That's a unique podcast. <laughs> the first time. And then just like. And the you, topic is still only about American psycho. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Cause it's this podcast. Yeah. But like, um, I would just be interested in that. I'd be interested to say like the first few words you say are like, okay, so I just broke my 10 day silence. I'm talking now. My voice sounds weird. This is weird. And then, yeah. you know what? You can just get somebody to prepare the whole thing for you. They're like, this like is it. your guest. They can give you your little like breakdown. And then your guest comes in and then you just have to like follow. You shouldn't know who the guest is. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Like yeah. you should just, the whole thing should get produced for you. So the guests are almost the host. Almost, but maybe there's somebody here with you kind of guiding you along. But the thing is, is like, it, it should be totally surprising to you. It should be totally, you should mm-hmm. know you're doing a podcast, but you shouldn't know anything about it so that you sit down First word you've ever spoken is now you're interviewing this person and you don't know like. What's and going now on. we're bringing in your ex girlfriend that you haven't spoken to for five years, <laughs> who cheated on you. No, she didn't. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be cool. Because, I mean, just if anything, just to hear what it, hear how you respond to it, hear hear if you're like zen about it, or if you're confronted with something, are you? Do you immediately click back to like? I like you know, it. I like that'd it. That'd be cool. I appreciate your mind, a true improviser mind that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I just think that'd be a dope show. I'd probably yeah. watch that show. No, no, it's cool. It's cool. Listen to it. Um, all right, man, this has been a great conversation. I had a great time. Thanks it's so much It's been really, me. really enjoyable. So I'm going to ask you, I, I know we haven't focused so much on the concept of balance, but I don't, it's just been the, the flow of the conversations the way it's gone. But I always, the, the question I always ask people before they leave is, what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? To me, I think uh, the idea of balance, I do, I do think I have a, con- a view of that. Uh, you know, and again, like having left improvisation for, you know, it's been about a year and a half now, I think I rebalance my life. And what I think for creative people uh, is important uh, is that what, if you pictured like a balance with two weights on it, if you're a creative person, make sure that what you are weighing down on your creative side is truly what you want to do. So that, you know, whatever is on the other side, the, the part that fulfills your life or the part that is your time off or the part is it your hobby actually is balancing something creatively pure because i think what often happens with people who do comedy and writing and all that kind of stuff is they sort of lump a lot of stuff into this like creative realm on this side of the you know balancing weight and then they sort of just say time off on this side or you know i'm going to take a rest but you're taking a rest from sort of chaos and i think it helps to just um pick exactly what you want to do and stay faithful to it and work hard on it and i think it'll be more rewarding when you take time off and more sort of clear. That's sort of the breakthrough I've had in the last year or so. It's just, it's to not do this show, that show and write and this and that. I've just sort of been like, I'm writing. Um, and I think that's been useful to me. So I love that, man. That's great. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. a great way to win. Um, where can people find out more about you and, and your projects? Uh, are, you on, are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I never tweet though. I'll tweet about this podcast. Thank you. Um, you can find me at Michael underscore OT. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. You can find me there on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Great, man. All right. Thanks, man. Well, let's uh, let's go off on a little have a little meditation session now. Oh, cool. Is that what we do now? Is that this part? Sure. And why not? No, I mean uh, it uh, hasn't uh, been done before, but there's always a first time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. No problem, buddy. Thank you. Thank That's you. fun. That's fun. Perfect. So there we have it. Michael Orton Tolliver told you it was a it was a good one, packed with nuggets of gold, lots of useful information there. And I really liked also that Michael discussed the whole, you know, myth of Hollywood being this, like the golden place that you've got to attain to to get to if you want to progress your, you know, your career in the entertainment industry. So it was really refreshing to hear how he did the opposite. He went from LA to come over and, and develop a career from scratch in London. I know I, for one, have been guilty in the past of, I don't want to say guilty, it's just sort of like, yeah, I want to go out there to LA and, you know, create a career out there. But to be honest, for me, it's more of a lifestyle thing because I'm a surfer and there ain't much places to surf in London. I tried it on the Thames a couple of times, got very ill, threw up. No, I didn't I didn't didn't surf on the Thames. It's it's physically not possible. There are no waves. But I did swim in the Thames last year for a triathlon and I actually threw up while I was swimming. So uh, just uh, be careful if you're going for a casual swim in the Thames. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, really interesting and funny dude. And I'm going to keep an eye out for, for, for Michael and, and Chris's projects. And as Michael said, he also writes on, on his own. They both write individually as well. So yeah, hope you guys enjoyed that. As always, if you did, please do rate and review the podcast on Apple. It makes the world a difference. Gets it visible in it, you know, in this world of, of content. Everyone's making content, content, content. What content are you making? High quality content. It does help get it out there. And uh, if you haven't done already, then yeah, please do subscribe. And yes, thank you as always for listening. And just to repeat what is said at the beginning of the episode, Balancing Axes is made in association with the comedy crowd who are a online community and website that support independent comedy creators such as as myself they showcase the best new videos on comedycrowdtv.com videos vary from like adult animation sketch shows web series viral hits the whole lot so if you're a creator or even just a you know a fan of comedy then google them check them out and uh, i'm sure you'll love what what they've got on there so yeah thank you guys very much and i will see you I don't know why I've gone into this accent. I don't know what accent it is. But anyway, I'm going to commit to it. It kind of changed now. But I will see you or you will hear from me in the next episode. Okay. Bye-bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.